Hello, my name is Andrew Gamson, and it is my privilege to welcome you to the Culture Watch podcast, a podcast of speaking for him. If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that the purpose of this podcast is to take a look at current events and news stories from the perspective of a Bible-believing Christian. And why do we do this? We do this because God has called us to live in this world. He has certainly not called us to be of this world, but he has left us here with a mission, and that mission is to bring him to the masses. And one of the ways that we communicate him to others is by giving the biblical perspective on the events of our day. And so I'm very excited to be able to bring this podcast to you every Monday. And I'm so thankful for those who listen and are invested. It means a great deal. And so I just wanted to say thank you. Now, let's jump into news for the week of November 20th. We start with a story about Democrats being evacuated from the Democratic National Headquarters um, because of a pro-Hamas protest turned violent in Washington, D.C. This is a Fox News alert. Six Capitol Police officers are injured after battling anti-Israel protesters outside of the DNC headquarters last night. Several Democratic lawmakers had to be escorted out, and all House offices were placed on lockdown. The man from uh, Tennessee as well, Griff Jenkins, is live from Washington. Uh, Griff, what can you tell us? Well, good morning, guys. And you know, Lawrence, it was such a contrast. On Tuesday, I was out at that nearly 300,000 peaceful pro-Israel folks out there rallying on the mall. But compared to last night, look at this video, a violent mob of about 150 pro-Palestinian protesters blockading the doors to the DNC headquarters, demanding a ceasefire while punching and cursing Capitol Police officers, forcing the U.S. Capitol into lockdown, as Ainsley mentioned, in the event evacuation of lawmakers from the DNC, like Congressman Brad Sherman, who posted this on social media. He said, was just evacuated from the DNC after pro-terrorist anti-Israel protesters grew violent, pepper-spraying police officers in attempting to break into the building. Now, Republican Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna said, quote, my husband, newborn, and I are in my office in the Capitol, which just went into lockdown because of these uncontrolled protesters. Now, in the end, six police officers sustained injuries. One protester was arrested for assault of an officer, yet the protest organizers claimed it was peaceful. Watch. The folks in that building tonight, the folks in Democratic leadership have not been listening to the 80 percent of us from our diverse communities that support a ceasefire and to stop this genocide of Palestinians. Um, and instead of being met with leaders engaging with us, um, instead of being met, again, our peaceful protest, we were met by police. 
And something just to note in there, that protest organizer saying that they stood outside of the DNC wanting to send a message that 80 percent of Democrats are for a ceasefire. I just spoke to Republican Congressman August Fluger, who was in our hallways here. I said, what do you make of this? Are all Democrats for a ceasefire? He said, I was with Democrats last night when they got locked down in the Capitol. And he said the majority of Democrats support Israel. Quite a contrast from what those organizers are saying. So there are a lot of issues upon which Republicans and Democrats have a great deal of difficulty agreeing. But one issue that it is very clear that Democrats and Republicans agree mostly across the board is the issue of supporting Israel. And that is because Israel has been one of our longest, greatest allies. This nation is based on Judeo-Christian values. I know I have mentioned this in the past. I'm not going to belabor that point. But the one thing that I wanted to bring you out of this news story is I wanted you to consider the contrast between a pro-Israel rally, which was peaceful and caused no violence or distraction for law enforcement, and a pro-Hamas rally that left Democratic... Congress people stuck in the DNC and uh, the U.S. government buildings because of violence from these supposed promoters of nonviolence. And this is something that has been of great consternation to me over the last several years, that it seems like the most violent people are the people calling for tolerance and nonviolence. And I don't think they know what nonviolence means. Hamas is a known terrorist organization, and they want to end Israel. And it never ends well when you want to end Israel. And Rashida Tlaib has been censored by her fellow Congress people, but because of her strong pro-Hamas stands, which actually go against you know, democratic ideals, chiefly among them, uh, rights for LGBT people and the right for them to peaceably live their lives. Hamas doesn't want these people to live. Hamas wants these people to die. So let's put things in the proper perspective, shall we? And even if you disagree with the conservative side of things, You have to admit if you're being honest and looking at it with a true lens that there's one side that tends toward peaceful protest, which is guaranteed by the First Amendment, and one side that does not. And that is the contrast between Republicans and Democrats. And I think if we could get to the place where we could both peacefully protest, then there would be some really interesting discussions That would be productive for all Americans. But until we get to that point, we're not going to be able to do that. And I think that there was a time gone by when even if we disagreed on some of the fundamentals, we all loved America. And I'm not convinced that that is the case for the leaders of America. And it's a shame upon... Rashida Tlaib's district 
in Michigan that they want such an anti-American leader representing them. But sadly, I think it's a district that would be very difficult to turn. But we will just have to wait until the 2024 election and see if some of these extremely brash comments that she's made do turn that tide. This next story that I have to share with you is about Mike Pence and his daughter writing a book about family values. Hey, listen, uh, let me switch gears, if I may. And and uh, Charlotte uh, Pence Bond, great to have you. And you wrote this book with your dad, Go Home for Dinner, Advice on How Faith Makes a Family and a Family Makes a Life. And I was watching your interview on Fox and Friends, and you guys were great together. Um, I can't imagine your dad angry and pissed off. I can't imagine him yelling. Did he ever have a few of those moments? Because he's a very even-tempered man. He is extremely even-tempered. I had uh, one of the makeup artists at Fox asked me, she said, he's so nice. Is he always that nice? And I said, yes, actually, he is always that nice. Um, I mean, you know, of course we have our disagreements as a family and I think everybody does. And that's one of the things we actually talk about in this book is that the dinner table is where family members learn how to disagree with one another. And it's something that I think Americans could could learn how to do a little bit better. I was shocked when your dad described his, when he was growing up, he wasn't allowed to speak at the dinner table. That it was it was dad's time to speak, mom's time to speak, but the kids were not allowed to speak. Uh, did that happen at your dinner table? No, it didn't actually. Um, <laughs> I think you know we we have a chapter in the book that's about parents listening. It says be a parent who listens, and I think my parents did that really well um, and taught us how to respect one another and uh, let everybody take a turn talking. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's uh, done him any harm. I think he's, he's done well speaking in his life since. <laughs> my daughter and I wrote this book together and, um, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's meant to be a very personal story about our family, but uh, we're a very typical average American family, but by putting faith and time with our family first, uh, we've really been blessed and, uh, we hope people will grab a copy of go home for dinner because I think, I think, uh, you know, as I said in the beginning here, talking about large global issues, we, we need a stronger America, but the strength of this country has always come from our faith and our families. And the best way to strengthen families today and strengthen America is to go home for dinner. So I really like the idea put forth by the title of this book. Family dinners were always important to me growing up. My dad would impart wisdom of one variety or or another. We would discuss current events. um, And often he would read from a biography of a hero of the Christian faith. So going home for dinner really uh, is an important thing for me, especially as I now am in a ministry that is trying to bring people back to the blueprint of family values. And so I am very intrigued by this book. I'm hoping to have the chance to read it, and I may even share my thoughts on it on the podcast after I do, because it seems like it's a very important thing to share. 
Now, I know there are people out there who will be turned off because they don't like Pence, either because of his reaction on January 6th or just because of the way that he carries himself. But I think that for the sake of America and the fact that we need to have a revival among America's families, I would encourage you to read the book and take it at face value and not hold Mike Pence's political decisions against him when it comes to reading this book. I feel like the comment section on this clip that I just shared with you was indicative of the fact that many Republicans are doing to Mike Pence what they wish the Democrats wouldn't do to Donald Trump, which is considering him 100% bad just because you disagree with him. Now, when I reflect back on January 6th, I don't know exactly what Mike Pence could have done in that situation. I do know and believe that he did what he thought was right. And I think that we need to, as conservatives, be better than our liberal counterparts in the sense that we can believe that even if someone does one thing that we disagree with, they can still be a quality individual. Because we've arrived at a place in America where we've decided that someone does one thing I don't like, that means they are a horrible person with whom I do not want to have any contact. And I think that is a totally wrong characterization of the way that we should act. And so I just encourage you to consider this book. As I said, I will be looking to read it in the future and hopefully give some feedback on it on my podcast in the future because I do think that families are the foundation of society and I think the devil knows that because he has presented so many ways in which we can have the family crumble and he thinks he's winning but he's ultimately lost the war, even if he may win some battles here or there, he's lost the war because Jesus died on the cross. He said, it is finished, and he rose again the third day to make sure that we knew that it was finished. And so there's a lot to be happy about and excited about, even in the midst of the darkness in which we live. But I do think it is incumbent upon us as Christian families to be an example to the world of how a family should work and we need to step up our game in a lot of respects as far as that's concerned. You know, people throw around the statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. I don't think it's quite that cut and dried, but it is a high number. And so we need to prize marriage and family highly because we need to show the contrast between the way a Christian family operates and the way the world sees family. That is the hope of our society, is strong families, because strong families make strong communities, strong communities make strong cities, strong cities make strong states, and strong states make a strong United States of America. 
My next story is one that I kind of hesitated to share, but I think that it points out something very important, and it is about a top Republican donor choosing a new candidate to back in light of Tim Scott's dropping out of the presidential race. If you'll recall, last week I gave my thoughts on that, but here are his. So when a prominent candidate like a Senator Tim Scott drops out of the race, he had a lot of big money guys behind him, including my next guest, who is now setting his sights on one Nikki Haley. Eric Levine is his name. Uh, very kind to join us now. So, uh, Eric, in doing this, what did you base the move to? Why Nikki Haley? Well, the world's on fire and America is failing at home and abroad. Uh, from the ca- catastrophic surrender in Afghanistan to the appeasement of Iran to Joe Biden's inability to competently stand up to Putin. China is ascendant. America is in retreat. We cannot survive another four years of Joe Biden. Then why not four more years of Donald Trump? Because Donald Trump cannot win. We have all these... You've seen these polls? I've seen these polls. And what I find quite humorous is when the polls show that Donald Trump is behind, all the Trump supporters claim they're rigged, they're lies, he can't trust the media... Now, all of a sudden, they show him winning. The he's not New- just winning a little, right? He's winning a lot. Yeah, well, these polls that you were showing in your prior segment, he's, sure. you know, 62%. Those are national polls. Those polls are, irre- are irrelevant. The but polls- he's got 20 or more point leads in some of these other battleground states. Yeah, you just don't think that's going to last. Well, there, there, there are two, I think there are two different things. One is the polls that matter right now are Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Right. And in those, we see Nikki Haley rising and Donald Trump either plateauing or dipping somewhat and Ron DeSantis flatlining. If we get into a one-on-one competition, Nikki Haley will beat Donald Trump. I think one of the polls that's particularly interesting to look at is the recent Siena New York Times poll. Everybody in the Trump camp is delighted. They're thrilled. They're jumping up and down. It shows he's winning these battleground states. But But it's important. Jason Riley ran a piece in the Wall Street Journal, I believe it was on Tuesday, that made the observation in that very same poll that if Donald Trump is convicted of a crime... Those same voters from six to eight percent said they would vote for Joe Biden. That means Donald Trump loses all those states. So, in other words, a conviction changes everything. Even Completely. with all these multiple cases and the close to 100 counts, a conviction would change. But it hasn't altered things. So what, what, why would a conviction be such a big deal? Well, because I think there's a difference between people b- being accused of something. In America, thank God, you're guilty until you're you're innocent until you're proven guilty. And. I I may be opposed to Donald Trump, but I think it's fair to say there is a two-tiered system and he is being treated unfairly in many of these cases. So there's a particular reason why I bring this story to the fore. First of all, as I've said before, I'm grateful for the things that Donald Trump did for America during his four-year term as president. When he lost to Biden in 2020, I had the initial thought, while he can run in 2024. And my hope was that he would continue to work hard on behalf of the Republican Party, that he would make friends, that he would endear himself to people of the Republican Party, not because he was just doing whatever they wanted, but because it's important to have a good rapport among people. But Donald Trump isn't that man, 
and he's continued to burn bridges, continued to castigate anyone who even dares to disagree with him. He's a very volatile person, and he does not present himself in a presidential manner. So as we have approached the 2024 election, which it's hard to believe that we're already at the point in the campaign that we are, and what I mean by that is so many people are being written off, so many candidates are already dropping out, and we're still a year away from the election. But I do not see him as a good candidate for president. And I do think that if he gets the nomination, he will have a hard time winning. I will support him probably if he goes into the general election. But I think there are good choices who are running in the primary. And I do not want to reveal my specific pick here on the podcast. If you know me personally, you probably know who that is. But I will say the more I hear about Nikki Haley, the more I do like her. And so I'm really glad that she's getting the opportunity to make her views known and to speak plainly on issues that are important to Americans. And so I understand what this GOP donor is saying, that even if you think that Donald Trump is the best choice for this job, he may not be because of all the garbage and baggage that comes along with his potential nomination. Not to mention the fact that he could very well be a felon by the time we have the election. Now, do I think he should be a felon? No. I think for the sake of democracy and our republic as we know it, he needs to be found innocent of these charges because many of the things that are being levied against him are things that there's evidence against the Bidens for, but they get a pass because they live life on the other side. If you are a liberal, you can get away with things. You can excuse bad behavior. You can explain it away. But if you are a conservative, you cannot. And I thought that his vocal faux pas in this piece was interesting because he said, in America, you're guilty until proven, and then he changed it to innocent until proven guilty, which is true. The premise of our justice system is that we're innocent until proven guilty, but thanks to the 24-hour media cycle, instead, we have a justice system that is already slanted toward guilt before any evidence is heard because the news media talks it up for 24 hours a day for months on end and is convinced that a certain person, in this case Donald Trump, is guilty. And so that is the way that we go into these type of battles is with the idea that he's already the worst person that we've ever heard of. And I think that is wrong. But I think there are so many things that President Trump could have done in this ensuing time between 2020 and 2023, where we are now, 
to show people that he really cared about America, that he really cares about other people, and that he wants to do what is best for our country. And I just don't feel like that is something that has come across. Well, for our final story today, we are going back to someone that I've already mentioned today, and that is Rashida Tlaib. Uh, There was a discovery made on Facebook very recently that is pretty scary when it comes to Ms. Tlaib. The far-left Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Remember, she recently was censured for her anti-Semitic comments. Well, anyway, she has been part of a secret Facebook group in which members have glamorized Hamas tourists for years. Six years ago, she joined that controversial online group, Palestinian American Congress. The group is hidden from non-members and does not appear on the platform's search engine, but Fox Digital gained access. One user posted this. We don't want to throw you in the sea. We want you to ride it back from where you came from. With a photo of an Israeli hostage, another wrote about the achievements of the resistance in the northern occupied Palestine. Those are quotes from the Post. Richard, your reaction. Uh, Well, like, listen, I think those quotes are very disturbing, and I think we can all agree that Hamas is indeed a terrorist organization. And and, and, But with that being said, you know, you can't be responsible for everything that happens in a private Facebook group that you're a part of. I'm a part of a lot of text chats. Just because somebody in a text chat says something that's obscene doesn't mean that I said it. So I think we have to sort of delineate between those two things. Membership and saying it are two different things. And I think the fact that Rashida Tlaib was censured by the Congress speaks to the fact that her members— Members of her own, of the, of the, of the United States House find her uh, ideal problematic. But at the end of the day, when we think about this, as we are a year away from the election, this will ultimately come onto the voters. Mm-hmm. If the voters of her district feel that she represents them, they'll reelect her. If they don't, they'll unelect her. Period. Sure, Michael. Yeah, look, Harris, if, if I belonged to a group that spread hatred, bigotry, or anti-Semitism, yeah, those may not be my beliefs, but I'm almost willing to bet most of the viewers who are watching your show, Harris, would probably say, I would no longer belong to that group. I wouldn't belong to that text exchange that Richard just pointed an example. This stuff is appalling to me. Uh, it's not becoming of a member of Congress. And in my opinion, a Democrat should find someone else to replace her. We're seeing high numbers of anti-Semitism across this country uh, right now. There are Israeli people in this country, Jewish people in this country, who are afraid to go to work. They're afraid of their kids going to college campuses. We need to do something about this, Harrison. Having a member of Congress, a part of a group that clearly is anti-Semitic, is incredibly problematic. I just refuse to believe that after six or seven years, you wouldn't know what those people were saying. And I agree with you, Richard. It, It doesn't mean that you said it. But it also doesn't mean that you don't know what's being said after that Mm -hmm. many years. And only the voters can take somebody away. But they could take her off any committees that she's sitting on if they haven't already considered doing that. Look, look, I think that's up to the Speaker of the House to do that. And I will also add to this point that, you know, when we have these type of conversations, it's also important to point out when we talk about anti-Semitism, we also talk about the the impacts of Islamophobia. Right Right. now, as we speak, the FBI director's on Capitol Hill. You are not commensurate for this particular conversation. People being harmed no matter what religion they are. Sixty percent of threats against people in this country are against Jewish Americans. Mm -hmm. There's no Mm -hmm. equivalency to that, even for all of us and this brown skin. Not at this moment in history. So in this story, we have a Democratic representative. And by that, I mean a representative of the liberal point of view, not necessarily someone 
who is serving in the Democratic Party. But he makes the point that just because someone says something offensive in a group that Ms. Tlaib is part of doesn't mean that she agrees with it or is part of that problem. She has already proven to be that type of person. And this group just ratchets it up to another level. I think you are responsible to a certain degree that if someone gets volatile in a group that you're in to a position that you extremely disagree with, why would you stay in that group? So that's a good point. It's also important to note that this issue of anti-Semitism is front and center in the United States of America right now. We have so many students on college campuses who do not understand the significance of Jewish people to our history or to world history and the dangers of going against them. The Holocaust was a turning point in all of world history, and yet we're teetering on the brink of another Holocaust because so many people don't understand the damage that was done by the first one. And bringing other racial issues into this issue is not a way to solve this problem, especially when the people that are pro-Hamas are often from the Muslim bent. And so that is something to keep in mind. Don't try to downplay one version of racism by bringing up another one. As Harris Faulkner said at the end of this clip, there is no equivalency to what is going on. Even with all of the vitriol that, as she pointed out, brown-skinned people have faced in our culture, it's not comparable to what Hamas is doing to the Jewish people. And we need to continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I was going to do that at the end of last week's episode, and I didn't, so I'm going to take the opportunity to do that right now before we close. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Jewish people. We thank you that they were and are the apple of your eye. We remember how you said that you did not choose them because they were a mighty people, but you chose them because you loved them. We remember in the book of Genesis where you told Abram that all the nations of the world would be blessed through his seed. And truly that happened when Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so now we ask that you would protect your people. We ask that you would accomplish your goals through this conflict. We ask that the word of Christ would dwell richly in Christians of both Israeli and Palestinian descent, 
And we ask that kindness would overrule hate and that you would cause an end to this conflict. We ask that you would protect the leaders of Israel and we ask that you would bring leaders to the fore here in the United States that would honor and respect the ally that Israel is. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, the risen Savior, and the King of the Jews. Amen. Well, that's about all I have time for this week on the Culture Watch podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you have any feedback, questions, comments, or concerns, please hit me up with the contact information that's about to roll at the end of the show. And with that being said, I will simply say, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 